Let us pray. Father God, before we come before this word this morning, we beseech you to bless our looking to this word. In our own human condition, in a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked, this could be one of those passages that scoffers would say, this is, this is a terrible text. This is why I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible because of things like this. And yet the hope of Easter is in this text. The promise of the Messiah to come is in this text. This text points to Christ. This text prophesies of Christ. This text is the very sort of thing that on that road to Emmaus, on that first Easter morning, when two disciples were walking utterly confused at what your life meant and what your sacrifice now means. It's texts like this one that point to the fact that your saving plan was with us throughout our history, throughout our story, because our story is ultimately his story. And so let us look to this text this morning and be blessed by it. Grow in it. And maybe even if we come with doubt, have those doubts erased. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I truly do mean that when it comes to this text. I for the, you know, the high church calendar holidays, Easter and Christmas, Lent and Advent, people come up to you as a pastor and they say, what are you going to preach on? What are you going to preach on? And I, I will confess, I, I said, I think I'm going to have to step out of Exodus because I actually think we might even be in a text that would be really hard to preach in Easter. I've, I've told a few of you this very thing in our midst. And then I looked at this text, and this is an Easter text. This is really an Easter text. It's a great Easter text. And so hopefully we'll all discover this, but I know what you're saying you're saying, if you were listening to this passage, this is absurd. This is crazy. What is this all about? I know because I was saying that question. And more on that in a little bit. I mean, circumcision. Really, circumcision is a huge topic in this passage. There's a reason why we call these sorts of things, private parts. Let's keep these things private. We didn't get all gussied up for Easter to hear about circumcision as if we're holier than God. Why would the God of the universe want us to talk about circumcision? 
And actually, in one sense, the, the topic of circumcision is an illustration of this entire passage. Don't we live in a world that's private? That's private. You don't, you don't touch that topic. You don't talk about that topic. You, know, you don't talk about those things in polite society. And we worship a God who says, this matters to me. Who you are, even, even though you'll walk up to people and they'll never know. They'll never know these things about you. I know these things about you. I know who you are beneath it all, beneath the covering, beneath the facade, beneath your Easter attire. I know what you think is private to you, and I'm concerned about what's private to you. And when we start to look at it this way, all of a sudden, that topic of circumcision sounds a lot like sin. That's another topic that we get uncomfortable about. That's why the world's most favorite Bible verse, of course, is, do not judge lest you be judged. Totally taken out of context. But they know that verse because, hey, sins, circumcision, these things, private. And this is a passage where God says, not private at all. Not private at all. So, when we were last with Moses, he was on where? He was on Mount Horeb. He was on, better known as Mount Sinai. And he had been told by God to go, to go to Egypt, go to the elders. And Moses had these kind of waves of resistance, these waves of excuses that he is putting before God, basically saying, you know, I can't do it. Uh, I, I, I just um, send someone else kind of language. But now God has assured Moses that Aaron will go with him, and finally Moses is getting off the mountain. The problem is, where is he supposed to go when he gets off the mountain? Starts with an E, folks. Egypt. Where does he go? He goes to Midian. Now, you might not know your biblical geography, but Midian is about 300 miles in the wrong direction. Midian, there's, depending on where he landed in Midian, there is a chance that when he was in Midian, he was farther from the land of Egypt in which he was called to go to than he was when he was on Mount Sinai. A little peculiar, a little peculiar also because of two things that are going to be told to Moses in Midian. But, you know, maybe maybe he's a shepherd. He just wanted to return the sheep. Don't you remember what God told Moses on the mountain? My people are in bondage. My people are enslaved. My people are suffering. My people aren't worshiping me. Go. Go to the elders. Go to worship with my people. Go free my people to worship. To serve me. Surely, Moses, in being told to go by God, should have listened. It's a little bit like this. Imagine if you and I were outside the church after worship, and all of a sudden, inside the parsonage, I hear my dogs wailing. 
And let's imagine Bridget. We'll go for Bridget. Um, let's imagine my daughter's Bridget is by me. And I say, Bridget, Bridget, I don't know if the dogs need to go out to the bathroom or what's wrong with them. Can you run into the house and, and set the dogs, let them outside? Can you, do, can you go do that really quickly? Okay, okay. So she leaves. She looks like she's going to go do that. And all of a sudden, instead, she runs to the Gamine house. What are you thinking in that moment about Bridget? Bridget's not listening. Bridget's not listening. And then when she's at the Gamine house, she, she bumps into Monica. And we're going to see this in jo Moses' story to Jethro. And at some point around the Gamine house, she starts telling Monica, you know, Monica, I got to go in the house in order to turn off the dishwasher. What? Well, go. Go. Dad told you to go to in the house to turn off the dishwasher? Well, go then. That's a little bit like what's being said in this passage, because Moses went to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. That's what he told his father-in-law he's going to Egypt for. What's the problem of that? God had already told him who's alive. His brothers. He's already said the brothers are alive. They're suffering in bondage under Pharaoh. He's actually not telling the full truth and nothing but the truth. Maybe this is why in about a chapter and a half, when Moses talks about his speech, he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. He's not telling the full story to Jethro, but Jethro, hearing this story, probably seeing some, uh, some anxiety about this, gives a imperative command in the Hebrew, go, go. Go, he says, in peace. So he's now in Midian. He's been commanded again to go to Egypt in peace. And then we don't know how long it takes from verse 18 to verse 19. Because Moses has another visit, this time from God again. And the Lord God said to Moses in Midian, no closer, basically, than he was before to the land of Egypt. Go, once again in the imperative, the command, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, that's an interesting thing for God to say. There is, God is not wasteful in the words he includes in Scripture. And so I do have to wonder if we're getting a small glimpse of part of what Moses' worry was about. See, Moses had committed in the minds of the Egyptians a crime, a crime worthy of the death penalty. And so God says, all of those who would basically have persecuted you and given you a death penalty in Egypt, they're dead. They're gone. Go. And so Moses, at this point, after being told that 
those seeking his life in Egypt are dead and gone, finally gets his family in tow and starts to go down to Egypt. And we read, starting in verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. That sound like something? What does that sound like? Yeah, that sounds like the Christmas story, right? See, I promise you this was an Easter passage. I, it also is an, a Christmas story. It's undersell, over-deliver, right? There's hints of this here. It, you can go read Matthew chapter 2 and see there is a unique parallel here. Here Moses is riding down to Egypt, and he's got his wife and his two sons on a donkey. And with him, the staff, that is now the rod of God, the rod in which God has promised Moses on Sinai would do great, he would do great things with, great and miraculous things with. And so, here at this moment, we have the Lord meets Moses again, and he says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now there is a lot here in this point, in this passage. First off, the miracles are going to confirm the message. And yet here we have this moment, and this is the first time of what will be a total of 22 times in the book of Exodus where we are talking about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Eleven of those times, Pharaoh will be shown to harden his own heart. Eleven of those times, God will be shown to harden his own heart. Now, there's a lot here. So, first off, Egypt was a society, and this would not be that odd to American ears, which thinks, you know, everybody has just this, most people have this just good, warm heart. They're just good, warm, lovely people. Egypt was a society that we've, uncovered hundreds of writings on the fact that they really believe that your character was shown through your heart. They actually, there was even this belief that your heart itself might be its own little mini God, its own little mini God inside of you. And so who has the greatest heart of all? Who's the descendant of Ra, the sun god? 
in the eyes of the Egyptian. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh has the greatest heart of all. He's the descendant of the God of the sun. And so he's the most wonderful. He's the most fantastic of all of them. And so how are we to understand this hardening? I think a helpful way to consider this is think of a great like courtroom drama. Think of if you've ever watched one of those movies where you have the person on the stand and the person on the stand is actually a slime ball, but they don't, you know, they're pretending they're not a slime ball, right? And the good lawyer figures out a way where both the slime ball shows themselves to be a slime ball, but at times asks the right questions in order to show what is already underneath. See, the scriptures say the heart in Jeremiah chapter 17 is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the state of our heart and our human condition outside the saving grace of God. That we are, even in our best things, we are self-serving, we are self-glorifying, we are self-grandizing, we want to be gods in our world. We want our heart to testify, I'm a god myself. I know what's right. I know what's true. I know all that there is necessary to know. We desire that. And so this hardening is going to show Pharaoh to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. And yet, there's this interesting reality of let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold him. Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, first off, when Moses would say that to Pharaoh, his son, his firstborn son, is a demigod of Ra. I mean, you'd get him bad enough trouble. He's threatening Hunter Biden in our world. He's obviously very protected from all that he says and does. And yet, that wouldn't even begin to compare to the kind of insult that it would be to say that you would take the life of the son of Ra. How dare you? That's treason. That would be treason. And yet, there's something else we need to pick up. Who is a God like this? What kind of God is this? That would say, if you will not serve me, if you will not allow my people to serve me, I will take the life 
of the firstborn son in order to free them to worship me. It sounds so horrifying. It sounds so terrible. And yet, that's Easter. That's the cross on Friday. You will not serve me. I will take the life of my firstborn son. He, there's something prophetic in this. And we're going to see that more clearly as we go to the next three verses. Because this, this message isn't only for Pharaoh. Because as we unpack the next three verses, which are undoubtedly the verses that most confuse both Jewish theologians and Christian theologians in all of Exodus. There is no mistake. Moses is going to pick these words carefully. For instance, on the Jewish commentaries on this, they're just, I mean, they have no road to Emmaus reality where they, they have the Messiah who's told them, by the way, the whole Old Testament's about me. It points to me. It foreshadows me. And so in reading their commentaries, they really struggle with this because these three verses are written as a contained poem. It's almost like it's, it's not a haiku, but it's almost like a Japanese haiku in that the poetry, there's a chiasm in here, and the poetry shows Moses picked his words really carefully here. And yet the problem is, in picking the words really carefully, it leads to all sorts of confusion. I read, for instance, one Jewish commentator who said about this passage in these three verses, there's no evidence for it, but instead of Yahweh, this must have been a demon that showed up to attack Moses. Why? Why would they say that? Who's the greatest Hebrew who ever lived in the eyes of a Jew? Moses. Why would God, while Moses was going down to Egypt, go to kill Moses? He's the best of us. And kill his household. Another Jew said, it, it just it's obvious Moses intended for it to be like this, but but obviously there was there was more of a story that we just can't understand about this. And then, and then uh, both Christian and, and Jewish commentators start blaming the wife. By the way, the wife's a hero in this passage. She'll be a hero. More on that in a moment. But there's just this confusing reality to this passage. It's a little bit like this. Some of you know who Howard Cassell, oh, Cosell is, um, and some of you don't. Matters your age. And if I were to say, down goes Frasier, down goes Frasier, down goes Frasier, some of you would know exactly what I'm referring to. Frasier and Ali boxing. And you'd be like, wow, you know, Howard, he just, he could, he could show a description of a boxing match. You know, he could really tell you what was going on. You could sit by the radio and you could know, you could feel the blows. If Moses was Howard Cosell, this would be the call. 
He hits him with an uppercut, and he falls, and the other guy falls, and you're going, what? What's going on? Tell me what's going on here, because Moses keeps using he and him, and and he's using it in a way where you don't know who he is and don't know who him is, and don't, and you just can't make any sense of it. So that in this passage, you would have had Jews that would have said, do you have any idea what God's getting at here? I, I don't know. What? I think this might be what's happening. And, and in other places, how about you? What do you think? I actually was thinking something entirely different. I don't know what's happening here. He writes it in a way where I think Moses, in the confusion of it all, he would have had a lovely smirk. Go, that's the point. I want you asking yourself, what is this all about? What is this all about? Because here Moses is, and he's coming in to lodging. Again, sounds like another story. He's coming into lodging. He's, it's probably starting to become nighttime. They're walking the more than 300 miles down into Egypt. They just want to rest. This household of God just wants to rest. And the Lord meets him there. As we read in verse 24, at the lodging place along on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Let's sit there for a second. I'm going to give you my best thoughts on this of what happens, but first let's just deal with and sought to put him to death. It could be Moses' firstborn. It could be Moses. But somebody in the household needs to die. And the Lord has come to take it, to take the blood vengeance. You see, you might think, oh, that's awful. That's terrible. And yet, what did God tell Moses on the mountain? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And the God of Abraham had one request. One law. See, there's no Ten Commandments yet. There's a law written on our hearts, but there's no Ten Commandments yet. There's one act of obedience that is the major act of obedience, the major sacramental right that a person found in faithfulness to God needs to find themselves having done. We read it in chapter 17, verse 9. Starting in verse 9, what happens if you are not faithful to that commandment? And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought in with your money from any foreigner who is not of your own offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought in with your money shall surely be circumcised. 
So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And listen, verse 14, any, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Moses stands guilty. I take the view that you don't have to take the view because of how Moses acting as Howard Cosell writes this up, that it's both Moses and his sons are uncircumcised. There's a reason for it. I'll get into it in a moment. But he deserves the death penalty. He has transgressed the law. He has failed to allow sons of God to faithfully serve God. And here we need to be careful in our own households. Because God comes to take a blood sacrifice from Moses to end his life because he was not being faithful in preparing his sons to serve God. And we really need to, as Christians, always have a healthy amount of concern for how our households are running and if we are actually hindering the growth and the faithfulness of our children to the Lord their God and how they serve them. God does not take kindly to such a thing. Actually, even if you're Moses, he will come for a sacrifice of blood. Let me catch up to the passage. So Moses transgressed the law. And here is an amazing thing. I would guess, and and most commentators guess, that some sort of Jacob-like struggle. Remember when Jacob wrestles with God? Begins to ensue between Moses and the Lord. It seems to be what is going on. Whether Moses is protecting his son, or whether Moses is trying to protect his own life, which we just found out earlier, he was afraid of going down to Egypt in part because people sought his death. By the way, for those who want to preach, God is always sunshine and rainbows. How do you do that? How do you deal with that? Oh, good. God, God, they don't want to kill me anymore. They're gone. Okay, let me go. Let me go to Egypt now. And on the way, God says, I'll take your life. If you're not faithful to me, I will take your life. See, you should have had more fear of the living God, the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this moment. And so a wrestling match ensues, it seems. And in the chaos, Zipporah does something that's absolutely absurd at first glance. And this is a good time to ask ourselves, What are the ages of everybody in this passage? 
Moses is roughly how old now? 80. Zipporah, let's say she was a young bride. You know, she was one of seven daughters, but she was almost certainly the eldest. Uh, I think it, the scriptures might even testify of that. But she's probably, let's say she was 20 at the time of marriage. How old is she now? 60 years old, if that's the case. It seems from the, a narrative in the account that when their oldest son, Gershom, is born, it's fairly quickly afterwards. How old does that put him? He's in his 30s. Now, men, you'll understand better. Can your 60-year-old mother, at when you were 30 years old, perform rapid surgery on you without your consent? No. No way, no how, you're not doing anything with that flint knife. But she does it. But she does it. How does she, how, how does that, how does that happen? Is it that, and I admit this is speculation, is it that the probably 30-something-year-old son submitted to the sacrifice in order to save the life of his father, who was also guilty of this sin, who was guilty of sin? Does that sound like something? Now we're in Easter. Now we're at the cross. And how does Zipporah know? She knows because of Genesis 25. While she's not related to Isaac, while she's not related to Jacob, she is a descendant of who? As a Midianite. Abraham. Abraham is probably... I couldn't figure it out, maybe five times her great-grandfather. Maybe four. And what did Abraham do with all of his household, with all of his sons, including Midian? He circumcised. Because that's what the law required. And so Zipporah took the flint knife, and she cut the son's foreskin and touched it to the feet, to Moses' feet. And by the way, that's not feet there. They don't want to translate where she actually touched. And with it said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now this, this might be the most amazing thing in this whole crazy description. Moses can't be her bridegroom because bridegroom is like, you know, it's suggesting that you're anticipating the marriage. They're already married. She's not talking to Moses. She's talking to the Lord. 
And she's remembering that she is a daughter of Abraham. And she's remembering the command that Abraham was given that had been passed down through her family too, even though in a different way they were not, they would have been considered like Gentile. But she's actually, in one sense, asking, Lord, are you, surely you're married to me as well? Think about that, Gershom. He's kind of like a halfling in one sense. He's, a, he's an ancient version of a Samaritan. And so she puts the foreskin on whatever is not Moses' feet, and the blood of that covers the sin of Moses. And then we read in verse 26, So he let him alone. He let him alone. The Lord stopped pursuing the life of Moses. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. It was then, it was through that blood of the son, the firstborn, that all of a sudden this household that had not been faithful and not had, had not been serving God as they should and had deserved death and had deserved judgment could be changed by the blood of the Son, the sacrifice in order to save those guilty of sin. And Zipporah, for good measure, for two times, she calls him a bridegroom, her Lord, a bridegroom of blood, a bridegroom of blood. Easter is the acknowledgement that the Lord's anger towards us has tarried because we are now covered in the blood of the Son that speaks a better word than we in our uncircumcised lips and we in our actions ever could before an all-holy God. And the Son willingly made the sacrifice. And it wasn't just a sacrifice quickly with a flint knife, but it was three days in the grave after the most brutal of tortures that the ancient world could ever imagine. And I just want to read a passage from Ezekiel 16 as we close, verses 4 through 6. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with the water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred, 
on the day you were born. God's saying there, and I still have another verse to read, but God's saying there is, when he found us, we were headed towards our death. I mean, what is an exposed newborn in an open field going to do? It's not going to thrive. It's not going to live. Hence why wicked governments like New York are now doing infanticide laws after babies are born. They know what will happen. Yet here's what God says to the one who was ready to die. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. How do you have life? How do you have the hope of the resurrection? Grace is not pixie dust. Grace is the blood offering of Jesus Christ for our sin and for our salvation. And if you believe on him in faith, you are fully covered. And so now he calls you to be faithful in serving him because he desires our serving. He desires our worship. And if you came in here a scoffer and a mocker, all you are is still out in the open field. You are not yet covered in the blood that declares, live, live. And so believe upon the Son, the sacrificial offering for your salvation. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that even though we have had all sorts of rebellion towards you, we have been hardened towards you, and we still at times are hardened towards you in loving you more faithfully. You did not leave us to die in our sins. You did not leave us open and exposed. But rather, you made the sacrifice of all sacrifice. And we are covered in the fullness of your mercy and forgiveness. And just like Moses could say later on in the book of Exodus, I now speak to the Lord face to face as I do a friend. You now have proven yourself to be a friend to us. And so we thank you for that gift. We were not worthy of such love, and yet you still gave it freely. For that we praise you this morning and every morning. Amen. Now let us take a time and a moment quietly and privately. Confess our own moments of being uncircumcised before the Lord.